Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. We're beginning a series on generosity and stewardship. And it was going to be Eric's series, but he took a break, so I'm subbing. And the first, it's a four-part series. The one I'm teaching on this morning is called God's Creation. The other three will be God's Character, God's Community of Grace, and Investing in Eternity. Now, this is not going to be a series focused on money and tithing and giving. We'll cover that. But I remember growing up in Fargo, North Dakota, at First Lutheran Church, and one Sunday of the year was called Stewardship Sunday. How many of you had a Stewardship Sunday? Okay. And the poor pastor who hated to preach on giving had to preach a whole sermon on giving. And then members of the congregation would go out amongst the community and meet with people in their homes and hand out pledge cards and saying, okay, how much are you going to give this next year? And usually there was an implied guilt. Well, if you gave 500 last year, could you give 600 this year? I want to challenge us to be thinking about not giving, but having a generous spirit of giving. When we think of generosity, we do think of giving. We've just completed a series of holidays, Thanksgiving and now just recently Christmas. Thanksgiving is more focused on being thankful, but Christmas, a big part of Christmas, which maybe it shouldn't be, is about gift giving. And you think about all the time you spent looking for gifts, shopping for gifts, and if you were a young child or like me, still spent a lot of time on my Christmas list to Santa. Gift giving at Christmas time. And you know, you think about it, we really do like to give gifts. It's fun. There's nothing more fun than watching children, or especially for my age, grandchildren opening those gifts. The joy, the delight, the excitement, the chaos, the craziness. It's just a wonderful time, and it lifts our spirits. Because you see, we do have generous hearts, and our generosity is extended when we give. It doesn't matter whether it's a gift or whatever it is, but we're going to talk about that. But it's an important thing to understand that it's a part of our spirit. Why do we give gifts at Christmas? Well, the wise men gave gifts, so maybe that's a reason. Uh, it's Jesus' birthday, so that may be a reason. Sometimes Christmas is an excuse to give. And it's important that we understand it's a natural expression of our love. Sometimes we have to give maybe because somebody gave us a gift and we got to give it back to them. And that's what fruitcakes or whatever they are known for. <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. But all that gift giving to each other is good. But I want to focus on where the source of gift-giving comes from. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And that's the gift-giving that comes from God. The gift that God gives to us. We know and we talk a lot about the attributes of God. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's everywhere present. The list goes on. But I'm not so sure that we really pause to think that one of his attributes 
perhaps a very important attribute, is that he's generous. He is very, very generous. We serve an extraordinarily generous God. And the basis of all generosity doesn't come from our goodness, but it comes from his goodness. And I believe real generosity comes from the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, which is God. He gave us the most precious gift, generously and without reservation, that being his son. There can be nothing more generous than that. But I want to go back a little bit, or quite a ways, 2,000 years or more, maybe 4,000 years, depending on how you uh, attempt the Bible. Because 2,000 years ago, he gave us his son, but long before that, he gave us his creation. We have to begin by understanding before you can give something away and give it to someone, it has to be yours. You have to have it. I'd love to give away your money, but then it wouldn't be a gift for me. I'd be good at it. I'd do a good job. But it wouldn't be a gift for me. It'd be a gift on your behalf. But you see, God is our creator, and he gave us creation. If we recognize and understand that he owns everything, we really own nothing. It's all a gift from God. As creator, he gave us the world to live in. Before he created man, he created this beautiful, beautiful planet. And we have to understand that he is the inventor, the architect, the engineer, the manufacturer, the producer. He made it all. The thing that's important is that he didn't just give us a planet. You look at some of those, you look at Mars and you look at the moon. How'd you like to have to live on the moon? And God could say, well, I gave you a planet. I gave you the stars, but well, we can't live on the moon. He gave us a place to live that was bountiful and beautiful. He gave us a garden. And as we began our existence in the garden, it was perfect. He looked at that in his creation and he said, it is good. Which really translates, it's really perfect. And we began in a perfect place and we were designed to live in that place. Having come from a farm background, I think we were all designed to be farmers. I'm not sure we were supposed to be sitting behind desks or in courtrooms or whatever. Because there's a part of us, I think, that connects with God's creation. Don't you feel something special when you're walking in a beautiful sunlit day in Albuquerque, perfect temperature, or maybe you're out in the garden and it's beautiful and you're smelling the flowers and the grass that's newly mown, or you're walking in the mountains, or you're by a seashore someplace, there's a connection because we were designed to be a part of God's creation. It's built into us. Unfortunately, sin brought flaws into that world. But someday we'll return to that new earth because God says, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. And I don't believe that we're going to be floating around on clouds. I believe we're going to have back to the garden. Maybe there should be a TV show, back to the garden. We'll be in that perfect place. And I don't know if there'll be cities. I know there'll be a new Jerusalem, but 
doesn't matter. There will be a connection again with God's perfection. And the thing that we really need to be encouraged with is that his creation is a witness of who he is. And I may have said this before when I was teaching, but when I was growing up, people would say, well, what about the pygmies in Africa who haven't heard the word? I don't know it was always the pygmies in Africa. I'm just not sure what that was about, but that's what I heard. And I thought, well, they're going to be, not be saved because they had no way of hearing about the word or hearing about God, etc. Not so. This is how important his creation is. Because in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, it says, For what can be known about God, and that means to know him, not just about him, is plain to them. He's talking, Paul is talking about the people who haven't heard the gospel. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, the divinity of God, divine nature having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So no one can stand before the throne of God and say, I didn't know who you were. Because through his very creation, which he gave to us, he gave it as a witness of his divinity, of his character, of his nature. And I would submit to you of his love. I personally believe that if you're going to be an agnostic or an atheist, you have to believe in evolution. Because if there is a creator God, which we here believe, then pride steps in. And you've got to say, okay, if he created me, there's somebody bigger than me, smarter than me, more powerful than me, and I owe him. And prideful man says, I don't owe anybody anything. I am who I am. I raised myself from the primal mood, ooze, and I climbed down from the tree and made computers and 747s. I did it all myself. I don't need God. Therefore, there can't be a God. Therefore, there can't be a creator. That's the flaw, the basis of the satanic thing that is evolution. I'm not going to get into it with scientists saying that things may have changed. There may be some mutations. That's not my point. There either is a creator God or there isn't. And when we acknowledge that he's our creator, we're acknowledging that he gave it to us. Psalm 65 says... Verses 5 through 13. The psalmist is talking about how beautiful his creation is. Psalm 65, starting in verse 5. Should have gotten bigger print. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, who formed the, you, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, and the turmoil of the nations. Those living far away fear your wonders. Where morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. 
The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. That's God's creation. He did a good thing. And he did it for us. This earth is not all rocks and sand. Driving down to Socorro, you think maybe God forgot something, but that's a part of the fallen earth. He could have given us minimal support. He could have just said, okay, let's see how you do. But remember, the initial creation was so perfect. In Genesis 2.9 it says, And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Everything we needed to sustain ourselves, and more than that, to be filled with joy, he created. When we really understand that he is our creator, then we can acknowledge that everything comes from him and everything is owned by him. Our lives are not really ours, our time is not really ours, and our possessions are not really ours. We are simply stewards or trustees, and I preached on that before. As a trustee, you're in, as a steward, you're given something that doesn't belong to you and in caring for and entrusted to you to take care of somebody else, the beneficiary. We're just caretakers. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And keep it doesn't just mean to maintain it, it was to make it flourish, to give it all the best we had. And that's our obligation. So why'd God give us the earth? Just for our enjoyment? I believe he gave it to us so that we could enjoy it, but for his glory. That we could do what we're saying this morning, Father. Thank you, Lord God, for what you've given us. May it bring glory and honor to your name. And I'll tell you, when you understand it's not yours, it's a real freedom to let go to be freed from those possessions and those worries. There's lots of worries in the world, but if you just say, God, it's yours, it's not mine. If we hold on to something, then we think we own it. And owning it has responsibility. So does being a steward, but owning it gives you possessiveness. I like to give this illustration. If I gave one of you $100 and I made it very, very clear, this is not your money. You understand? Got it. And then I asked you to give it to somebody. You would do so freely because you understood it's not yours. You were just a steward of it. I think of when you have valet parking and you hand the keys to the young man or girl that's going to park your car. They don't expect that you're giving them your car. They're just being taking care of it for you. When you check, go to a coat check. And you give them your coat. The lady doesn't say, oh, look, I got a new coat. Thank you. No, she's going to hang it up and give it back to you. You have to understand that our coats, our possessions, everything are just on loan to us. And God has given us the keys to our car, the coat, the clothes on our back, just to hold for his glory. When we give up that possessiveness by acknowledging it belongs to God, and his generosity in giving it to us, then we eliminate greed. 
My definition of greed is wanting to keep everything you have as well as getting everything you can from anyone you can. Wanting to keep everything you can and have, you can, have as well as getting everything you can from anyone you can. And you know, we're kind of taught that. Maybe not in other nations, but in the United States, we're taught that you're worth what your house size is, the newness of your car, your net worth, your 401k, because it's ours. And it's hard for us to get past that. But when we do, it's liberating. It's just so liberating just to say, I can let go of this, Father. We talk about cars, we talk about money, we talk about coats, but really that is probably the least significant thing that we are stewards of and that we can give. The most important thing we have to give is the love of Christ, expressed in a multitude of ways. He gave us something, and it always comes back to this, because we didn't deserve it, and we call that grace. We call that grace, unmerited favor. We didn't deserve it. That's the ultimate form of generosity, is to give something that you don't, the person doesn't deserve. Now, when you have children, and they're good, and they have, they've been behaving, and they haven't been naughty, or they've been naughty and not, whatever, then you say, this is a wonderful Christmas gift, I want to give it to you. But let's say when you're raising your children, they've been really disobedient, I mean naughty, rebellious. The first thing you don't want, the first thing you do is not go out and buy them a gift to thank them for their naughtiness. No, you discipline them. If somebody's bad to you and hurts you, you don't, the first thought is not, how can I give them something sweet, something nice? How can I be generous to them? But that's really what we should do. Because that's what God did. While we were yet sinners, naughty, disobedient, in rebellion, while we were that, Christ died for us. God sent his son to die because of gracious generosity giving. We didn't deserve it. In fact, we were naughty and we were bad. We were sinners still are, but he gave us salvation, and that is the ultimate generous gift. Another thing I was looking at is that what, when God gives us something, we call it a blessing, and that word is something that we just kind of toss around, and a lot of times I'll end a letter to somebody, blessings to you, and, and I mean it, but what does blessing really mean? The Jews, in their prayers, almost always start with Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, which means blessed or blessing to you, Lord God, King of the universe. They begin, out, begin their prayers, almost every prayer, with that statement, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, blessing to you, Lord God, King of the universe. And blessing is not, gee, God, I hope you're happy. It's a sense of wonderful, deep joy. They want to give to God joy. That should be our prayer. Bless you, God. We, how can we bless God? He blesses us. We'll talk about that. But how do we bless God? By bringing joy to him. How do we bring him joy? By being obedient. 
what is more wonderful than to have a child who is loving and obedient? And I'm not talking about military, yes, sir, I've got to. The child that comes up to you and says, Dad I, or Mom, I want to do this for you. That is a joyful blessing. And that's what we do when we give generously to God. We bless him. I looked up in uh, blessing and so on and so forth. And one of the ones we usually see most often is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And I chose one of them. It says, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Merciful in the Greek is best defined as somebody who gives empathy, compassion, or understanding. Being merciful is giving. So if you connect blessing, blessed are those, joyful are those, a good paraphrase, which I made up, is we could say, oh, the joy of those who have the ability to understand and share the feelings of others. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed, joyful are we when we give mercy, when we extend something generously. That is spiritual generosity. A definition which is not mine, but I think is good. Generosity is the noble, gallant lifestyle of giving goodness to others, lavishly and liberally, without expectation of return or personal benefit. Didn't say anything about possessions. Giving goodness to others lavishly and liberally with no expectation of return. That's the witness of Christ. How joyful it is to share with unbelievers a gift with no expectation of return. There's got to be a hook to it. What do I have to do? Except for accepting Christ, it's a free gift. How do we gauge our generosity? Somebody said, quote, you can show me your calendar and I will tell you what is really important to you. And I look at my calendar and it's full. And not all of it is of a generous giving nature. A lot of it's about me and my busyness. And I know we've got to go to work and I know we've got kids and we've got soccer games, I understand that. But if you think of your calendar saying, okay, how can I give? And we're ta not talking money. How can I give? What can I give? Show me, God, how I can give. How can I give mercy? Ephesians 5.2 says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice of God. Giving is sweet. Fragrant offering. A smell that just lifts us up. And 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to see their hopes, no, excuse me, set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
I submit to you that truly life is a generous heart, a giving heart, a merciful heart. How can we bless someone? Lots of ways. Hospitality is one. I think of the Old Testament admonition in Leviticus, Leviticus 19, 33 to 14. When a stranger sojourns in your land, you shall do him no wrong. The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native amongst you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land. I am the Lord your God. That means that we are to give to a stranger that which we would give to our family. The phrase in that, you shall love him of yourself, is very powerful. I found an interesting story I want to read to you about a missionary who writes this. One of my favorite examples of generosity was the mission field in Brazil. We were doing a medical clinic and street evangelism in the favelas, slums. Someone on our team brought candy suckers for the children. Children swarmed us for the suckers until we ran out completely. Once the suckers had been distributed, I saw something that encourages my heart even today. I can see the picture in my mind like it was yesterday. One little girl, probably four or five years old, was sharing her sucker with a younger girl who was apparently too small to be noticed in the distribution. She didn't get a sucker. They may have been sisters, I don't know, he says, but with the older girl holding it, they shared the sucker lick after lick, back and forth between the two until it was gone. Now I know all you mothers are just cringing. <laughs> there was no selfishness, no arguing, just pure generosity and love. It was an example of extreme generosity that impacted me greatly. I could only imagine that had that scene been played out in my own homeland with children or adults. And I like this person's response. I believe generosity is a response, a recognition, and a statement. It's a response to what we have received. It's a recognition of genuine need. And it's a statement of what we believe. How do you get a generous spirit? Christmas just over a Christmas carol. Probably the main character, I think, is Scrooge, which has become a name to indicate the opposite of generosity. And if you think about it, there's, there's three major scenes in it, so to speak. There's lots of scenes, but there's the, he's visited by the spirit of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future, the spirit of Christmas. And he saw Christmas past, what he'd come from. He saw Christmas present, that he was stingy. But what impacted him the most was when he saw, was taken as if he, when he had died, as if he had died to Christmas future. And he saw that all of his wealth meant nothing. Nobody cared for him. Nobody liked him. They spoke badly of him. And he realized that he had no generous spirit. And that spirit of Christmas changed him. And he gave away the goose and he did everything like that. But it was a change in spirit. It was a change of heart. And if you face the difficulty of sharing your faith, sharing your, what you have, sharing your encouragement, sharing whatever, being merciful, being forgiving, 
help God, let God help you to have a spirit of generosity. What can you give generously? Remember where it comes from. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The list could be very, very long. Here's just a few I came up with of giving. What can you give generously? A kind word, a helping hand, a phone call to someone who needs to hear a friendly voice, a visit maybe to a hospital or, or maybe to a person who's just lost a spouse or a child that we're facing now, and they're alone. Christmas, post-Christmas is hard for many people because maybe they're alone and all the kids have come for Christmas and now they're gone back home and they're alone. I know as I do probate work that especially women who come in who have recently been widowed, there's a flurry of activity. People surround them, they comfort them, they bring food before the funeral, during the, the memorial service and a few days afterwards and then it kind of drifts down to nothing. And they go home to that house that's empty, and they're alone, and their spirits are brought down with mourning and grief. And that's when you give them the gift of mercy and love and compassion. That's when you go visit them. Wonderful to be there for the funeral, wonderful to be there for the reception, send them a kind card, but don't forget that you can give them comfort that nothing else can. You can give them counsel, and you can give out wisdom. Now, wisdom, that's not smarts. My definition of wisdom is just experiences over time. I can share with people who have lost a child. I'm not going to fix their broken hearts. I'm not going to wave a magic wand and say some wonderful words that all of a sudden they're going to be so happy. I'm not going to be able to do that but I can comfort them because I can share with them. I can say, this is what I've walked through, and I understand. I don't know exactly what you're going through because that's not my child. That's not my grandchild that I lost. You can do that too. You've been through hardships. You've been through challenges. You've been through difficult times. Share that with mercy and generosity. Sometimes it's easy to judge and say, well, you've got to just get through it. That's not a generous spirit. You walk with them through it. And it may take a long time, but you're patient because your generosity is patient. I'm going to finish with an example that I think is relevant. Yesterday I performed the funeral service for a father of a close friend of mine. He was 98 years old, almost 99. Served in World War II, and I gave this talk, and a portion of it was about being a part of the greatest generation. And I realized that what made them great, and I'm going to cover some things here with you, but is that they gave. In his book, The Greatest Generation, Tom Brokaw said that this generation was united not only by a common purpose, but by common values, which were duty, honor, courage, service love of family and country, and above all, responsibility for oneself. 
They were a generation of men and women who gave new meaning to the ideas of character and strong values. From the military heroes to community leaders to ordinary citizens, they were people who served their country with valor, then came home and transformed it by serving their communities and serving themselves, serving their friends. This generation is passing away before us. There are members of in this generation in this church. Statistically, there's 32,000 of these people that are dying every month. They'll be gone, not too long from now, but not forgotten. Because the, what Tom Brokaw says is that what they left is that they were forged in difficulty. They were children of the Great Depression. They came of age when economic despair was over the land. They watched their parents lose their businesses, their homes, their farms, and their hopes. They had learned to accept the future that played out one day at a time. And just when there was hope from coming out of the Depression, the world was hit with World War II. They left their farms and ranches, their jobs on the main streets of America. They gave up the places on the assembly lines in Detroit and the offices of Wall Street. They had to quit school or after they took off their cap and gown, they put on a uniform. They answered the call freely and with generous hearts to save the world from ruthless and powerful nations. They did not protest. Because when you give generously, you don't protest. At that time in their lives, their days and nights should have been filled with innocent adventures, love, and the lessons of the workday world, but instead they were thrust into brutal conditions. When the war was over, the men and women who had involved in uniform and capacities of the army joined in short-lived celebration, then Prokos says, immediately began the task of rebuilding their lives and building the world that they wanted. And I would add, by serving. They married in record numbers and gave birth to my generation, the baby boomers. And most importantly, they stayed true to their values of personal responsibility, duty, and honor. That generation gave. They're not the only generation that gave. Maybe they aren't the greatest, but they exemplify an example of what we can look to as a person individually of giving self-sacrificially, generously. Freedom is not free. You've heard that expression. Hundreds of thousands of Americans died in that war. Millions were killed throughout the war but they entered it and gave their lives freely. Salvation, careful how I say this, was not free. It's free to us to receive, but it cost God his only son. But he gave it generously and freely with a generous heart. Let me close with this saying by, a, I stole it from a sermon. Be generous with your words by encouraging those who are facing both the internal and external battles of life. Remind people of the peace and comfort that God gives and of the eternal home he is preparing where our current internal battles will never touch us again. Be generous with your time. Spend time with your spouse, your children, your family, and your friends. Stop spending so much of your time absorbed with yourself and what you are making of this life and look to how your time spent with others might give a better glimpse of the joy that is to come in eternity. 
Finally, be generous with your stuff. The best way to keep your eyes on what God is building in eternity is to loosen your grip on what you have been given temporarily. Be generous to those who have little and remind those that have much that this stuff we currently possess is comparable to a tent we might camp in. After five days of roughing it in the woods, we are longing to go home to our modern comforts. Set your eyes and your trajectory on your eternal home, for its joy and comforts outweigh all that we experience in this life. The spirit of generosity. You can't gin it up. I can't talk you into it. You can't read a book about it. I think the way you get it is by submitting to Jesus Christ and saying, fill me with a generous heart. And there may be people in your life that you need to extend mercy to. Remember, that's a gift. And maybe they don't deserve it. But we didn't deserve it either. So we rejoice in what God has given us. We thank you, thank him for the gift of salvation, the gift of his son, the gift of creation, the gift of life. Life is precious, and he gave it to us. He gave it to us lovingly and willingly so that we could give him back joy and blessing. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Alam. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. 